the UK Psych Health and Safety and ISO 45003 podcast. The goal of the UK Psych Health and Safety podcast is to be your source of information on psychological injury prevention, health promotion and best practice. In doing this, we aim to rapidly advance the global practice of psychological health and safety in workplaces and adoption of best practices from the ISO 45003 standard. We will be looking at fully integrated approaches to managing psych health and safety and well-being strategy in the workplace that meet the needs of everyone in the organisation. Your regular host will be Peter Kelly, Senior Psychologist with the UK Health and Safety Executive and Sheila Lord of BMR Health and Wellbeing. Every week we will have a guest episode from the fields of health and safety, human resources, psychology and academia who are leading the way in their corner of the globe. Hi, and welcome back to this week's episode of the UK Psych Health and Safety Podcast. Uh, really excited to introduce our guest this week. We uh, are joined this time by Kevin Daniels. Now, Kevin is a professor of organisational behaviour at the University of East Anglia. His research is concerned with workplace practices for health and well-being. And Kevin's led many projects and actually Kevin and Peter uh, go back to the development of the HSE standards back in 2004. And, as, and Kevin has also more recently worked on 45,003. So, so the boys have a bit of a history. Um, Kevin's a member of the British Standards Institute for Health and Safety Committee. And he's also a member of the British Psychological Society's Division of Occupational Psychology, Health and Wellbeing Group, and also the Society for Occupational medicine academic forum so um quite a wide range there kevin um now i met kevin at the health and well-being show um in march and listened to one of uh, listened to him talking at one of the conferences uh, and today we're going to be talking about um how as employers we go about really prioritizing uh the business case for well-being uh, and kevin's also going to tell us about a recent project that he's been working on uh which is the evolve workplace well-being um website which is launched on may the 16th uh, and this website's a toolkit of free evidence-informed uh, workplace well-being resources that we'll put the links to in um, when we uh, publish this recording. Uh, and that draws upon all the latest cutting edge research and insider insights um, and gives you a whole, suit, a whole suite of tools that you can use. So Kevin, welcome to the show. Hello, good morning. It's, it's great to be here. So I, I, I'm really looking forward to this. I was going to say I'm really looking forward to catching up with Peter as well, but we've been speaking quite a lot recently <laughs> over one way or another. So, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. Fantastic. So, Kevin, let's just let's just kick off with a you know with a simple question. You know, when we talk about workplace well-being, what are we talking about there? Are we talking about well-being and all of these different holistic approaches, or are we just simply talking about creating good work? I, I, well, I, I think you know it's. I think me and Peter will agree on this. Like, good work is the absolute bedrock. Um, so, you know, it's it's one of these things. It's a or misquote probably Paul Litchfield, who was you know, you know, quite famous as uh, was the chief medical officer at British Telecom and then was chair of the What Work Centre for Wellbeing for a while. It, it, he would say it's not yoghurt and Pilates. It is, you know, it's, it's it's about good work and the health promotion that goes on top of that is probably won't work, be seen as inauthentic unless you get the good work. So obviously what we mean about good work is things 
you know, which are captured in the management standards and other things, so job security, progression, um, having a voice in how you do your work, having good relationships at work, decent management, you know, sort of having a decent person as a line manager, that kind of thing. It's the, that's the absolute bedrock, and it's the absolute bedrock because that's what people experience on a day-to-day basis. So you don't spend most of your time at work doing, you know, lunchtime Pilates classes or something like that. You spend most of your time at work doing work. So if the work isn't good, you know, it's it's not enjoyable, it's, it's overly stressful, then that's going to undermine well-being uh, completely. So if, if you like, unless you've got a really good, and quote another famous person in this space, Dan Carol Black, who used this um, metaphor, uh, is that a metaphor or similarly? No, it's a metaphor, isn't it? Uh, about having good soil. Uh, and to use that kind of horticultural metaphor that you need you need a good bedrock, you need good soil, else nothing will grow. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've um, we've been, been on this journey nearly 25 years. Well, I've been in HSC 25 years. Um, it seems like five minutes, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Uh, we'll, we'll talk later about the uh, the whiskey event up in Edinburgh with Rob Brinner, where we talked about the foundations of good work as we drank um, some e- excellent whiskey. Um, I remember we were at a BBS conference and you shared a paper about uh, job design and, and the, the way uh, the way work was designed. Do you think it, due to the pandemic, we've we've effectively had to redesign work at, at pace uh, and actually it it may be what has led to us is actually opportunities to change the way we work and design it around people rather than around systems i i i, I don't know necessarily that there's, a, there's a single answer to that i think some some of the organizations that, that we've worked with and we have tracked a number of organizations over the pandemic as part of our uh, part of our funded research for the Economic and Social Research Council and, and other projects that we've had, is some organisations have actually embraced that and seen the opportunity. Uh, and some organisations probably haven't and they've basically let the IT do the designing of work. And of course, it all depends on, on, on the nature of the work as well. So if you're in advanced manufacturing and there's, we, we have a project with uh, a, a local um, manufacturer uh, in in Norfolk, and of course they had to, and they, they were designated as a, like a key industry, so the guys had to turn up on on the production line and and do the work. Um, so they didn't really redesign how they were doing their work, but what they were good at, because it's advanced manufacturing and continuous improvement and safety critical, was they were very very good at making improvements very quickly to make that environment as safe as it could be for people who had to turn up for work. But for you know people like. The majority of people who are now office-based and knowledge-based and using computers that don't necessarily have to be in contact with the public or service users. I think some organisations have done done very, very well uh, and saying, well, actually, we don't need to be in the office. There's one of the organisations that we tracked over the over 12 months at the start of the pandemic was, was a very, you have to be in the office culture, uh, central London investment bank so it's very you have to be in the office and, and they actually realized that people could do their job from home and that has led to a, it seems like a permanent shift in terms of how they're offering flexible practices and similarly we had a couple of software companies 
that we were looking at. And again, it was very much that, you know, you turn up to a place of work and you do your work. And then with them, it was definitely, well, actually, we can have our engineers, uh, software engineers working from home. There are problems for doing that because a lot of software engineering is team-based and it's useful to be co-located with your co-workers because then um, on another project, as one of our interviewees said, if you know what the your co-designer is swearing about, then you know what your co-designer's problems are and you probably can help a little bit. Um, so if you can get over that kind of issue about having that you know, contact and tacit knowledge, if you like, about what is bothering other people and what you need to help them with, which these places did by organising various informal forums, stuff like that, then you can get over that. I think one of the things that we did see in these organisations support wellbeing was this kind of recognition that actually, uh, and software engineering is a very, very good example because often software engineers really enjoy their job. They really like programming challenges. They really like solving engineering problems. Um, and that they can get too much into their work. So they're working very, very long hours. So we saw a lot of messaging that we go, take a break, make sure you look after yourself, don't spend all your hours working. Um, I think think that was a good thing. And then also saw spontaneously in some organisations, which was supported, uh, support groups growing up. So support groups for carers, parents, homeschooling, that kind of thing. So, so organisations were encouraging people to informally support themselves which are you know in a pre-pandemic working environment you would do quite naturally just by running into people and you know people with common interests but this this is a structured way of using uh virtual communication to have that support so uh, yeah i think some organizations have, have, have done very well other organizations might have just think well you know here's your technology get on with it uh, yeah. and i think to follow that up one of the things we did find is, and this, I think this is a really important point about health, safety and well-being. at the initial stages of the pandemic, now some of the organisations that were not as, you know, culturally mature uh, in health and well-being as, as others, they, they, you know, they did catch up. But those that have got a, a strong history of having a structured health and well-being programme, line management support, listening to employees as well, uh, those are the ones that adapted most quickly uh, and certainly most proactively. So we had a number of organisations that were sending people home, including a construction organisation, which had people on site, sending people home as much as they could before the government told us to work from home. So, so they were acting on people's concerns um, yeah. because they were listening to their workers before the government said, you're working from home now. And I think that that's a really, really good example of where you've got more resilience to a crisis because you have a you know well-established well-grooved um health and safety procedures which included the kind of voice mechanisms to be able to listen to be able to communicate to people as yeah, well so, i mean effectively um, they had a good foundations didn't they yeah yeah I, I, absolutely now that's not to say that because we had one organization actually which was you know they kind of admitted we we're really good at safety because we're in a safety critical industry we're not so good at health and well-being we haven't really paid attention to that so we, we want to develop uh, and then the pandemic comes along and not in the place that they, you know the starting place that they would ideally like to be but they actually developed uh, and got better at it over the 12 months that we tracked them so you know it's not all doom and gloom it's not you know one of these things well 
we're not where we want to be, so we we, yeah. we shouldn't do anything because it's too difficult. They actually said, well, we, we need to do something and we're going to carry on doing something. Uh, and one of the things they did was they appointed, it's one of, you know, one of these things that you kind of talk about, isn't it? Is it, is it HR, is it OH or OSH that deals with this stuff? In that organisation, safety critical. So they had um, sort of board level representation for safety. The director in charge of safety appointed in HR uh, health and well-being business partner. Mm. Uh, so it's kind of like a highly specialised function in HR, but reporting uh, to, to safety. It's not the only way you can do it, but it's interesting that you know you see the emergence of these specialist roles, either yeah. under HR or safety, depending on the industry. I mean, I was talking. I was talking with Kerry um, Cooper a couple of months back, and we were talking about how the HR and HS role is had to merge during the pandemic. And the the concern is that now, as we're coming out of this pandemic, that they they differentiate into camps again. I don't know what your thoughts mm. are about it because I think for, for for the practical application of psychological health, it requires both health and safety and HR. Um, because there are intrinsic elements there that uh, HR do and health and safety do. So uh, do you see it going backwards or do you, do you actually think maybe some some organisations, some of the better organisations are realising you have to combine the two for psychological health? I th- uh, yeah, I think it, 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 yeah, I think it largely depends. I mean, smaller organisations, the, the person in charge of HR is also the person in charge of health and safety. Um, yeah. You know, because you don't get that functional split. I think in the larger safety critical organisations, so look, looking at major infrastructure uh, and construction firms, they already have very well integrated HR and uh, OSH um, uh, facilities. By you know, there's one organisation we did some research in that the major construction firm, occupational safety and health, they lead on wellbeing but they have HR, director level HR representation on on their wellbeing working groups, health and wellbeing working groups, partly, and this is really interesting, (laughs) partly for HR to say, well, that's not a strategic priority. And more importantly to say, well, what you're proposing there is illegal. It doesn't fit with employment law. So they might come up with stuff like, we want to do something for this particular group. So you can't do that for that particular group because it's discriminating against other groups. You need to do it for everybody. So it's, it's kind of interesting. It's not just about expertise in health, safety and well-being. It, it's also the wider employment and the, the wider regulatory perspective as well, that you can bring both, both sets of disciplines um, or functions to bear. But I, I think, yeah, yeah you, you, you're right. You do need the, the two. I think outside of safety critical, one of the big things that's really helped within the past um, few years is for HR to feel confident about this space because mental health became a protected characteristic. And all of a sudden that becomes an EDI issue, which from you know talking to practitioners, HR practitioners seem to be a little bit more comfortable with uh, EDI than they do health and safety, which is a bit kind of engineering um, in some respects. So I I think that that kind of moving mental health into the EDI space has really, really helped uh, a lot uh, and uh, a lot with that kind of cross-fertilisation and that kind of confidence and that motivation to move to say, well, well, this is an issue that we need to to, to catch up with. I think the other thing that I'm pre-pandemic, I think 
once we've been through the pandemic, everyone realizes there's things like mental health, musculoskeletal, eye strain, um, long COVID, and, and all the other stuff uh, are, have become really, really important um, occupational health issues. So I think it's there were pre-pandemic, a couple of princes uh, and a prime minister saying mental health is really, really important. Why we should mean to Theresa May um, as really help shift things up the agenda. Uh, so hopefully we're not going to go backwards. Hopefully there's, you know, there's been a, a step forward here. And, you know, and then for, for me, it, it, you know, it doesn't really matter who, who, who does it, whether it's HR, occupational health or whoever. No, so long as it gets done, I think the, the other thing is to is to realise that it's not just about you know having a health and wellbeing business partner or you know is it does it fit with the engineering function and you know like safety does in you know advanced manufacturing and construction for example or does it fit with HR because it's EDI? It's so long as things get done and it happens at kind of ground level. So it has to be this kind of vertical thing through the organisation that, that it really has to affect what people do on the ground. And then there are a variety of ways of getting um, to that, but it really has to influence, you know, kind of, you know, day-to-day -day management practice and the kind of systems that the organisation operates as well. Uh, so what we see in some organisations is that, you know, you can have, you can have your health and wellbeing champions but your health and wellbeing champions won't really do anything unless they're influencing things on, on the ground and they're empowered to do that. Uh, and they have time to do that and they're resourced to do that. And I think those champions then can spread the message. They can influence people to kind of say to the managers, actually, we expect to be treated a bit better or managers to be influenced to treat people a bit better. Uh, and we also see organisations... In, in kind of their management development, including wellbeing modules. So I'll give a shout out to East of England Co-op on this one that, you know, when they take on store managers, there's, there's eight modules in their management development, if I remember correctly. And one of those modules is on com common mental health problems, uh, how you spot them, how you deal with them, how you prevent them. So, it, I mean, it has to permeate the organisation. Uh, and if I may, going on about permeating organisations, uh, and I think this is one of the, it was, it was kind of like, um, I wouldn't say a Damascene moment, but it was certainly a penny drop moment. That we have, um, the university's got good relationships with, with Adnams, you know, kind of most people know uh, 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 East Anglian Brewer. Uh, we invited the Sadie Lofthouse, the Director for People and Culture, to come up and give a, a, an open lecture about their health and wellbeing programme. And so she's, so she's saying what they do. They don't have a formal policy. It's, you know, it's very informal how things are done, but they, you know, they have a policy. It is there. It's just not written down in a formal way. Or thing, if you like. But she said something like, um, I don't know, there's an audience question. I forget what the question was, but her answer was, well, we take the view that everyone's well-being is everyone else's business. And of course, I've heard before. Um, and then, of course, you hear it in safety, don't you? Everyone's safety is everyone else's business. And you think, well, that's, you know, that's the way to think about it. Because in safety, you think about safety cultures. And everything falls from that. So your hierarchy of controls are, in fact, a manifestation of the organisational culture. So if you see health and well-being as a cultural thing, what kind of organisation do we want to be? Then all the practices fall from that. Um, and the practices reinforce the culture. So it's not like a, 
you have a health and wellbeing program over here, which is one thing you do, and you have an EAP over there, which is another thing you do. You might do a bit of management development to make sure that you know, your managers are treating people right. You know, they're coaching, they're delegating over there. What you have is an integrated program, and it's part of the culture, and it's something that's um, communicated to people. It isn't, you know, and it's and it's zenith, I suppose, an organisational value. Uh, it's something within them. We do see some organisations. Um, you know, it's construction firms that produce flashcards for, you know, site managers. So they know what the, the key things about well-being that they're looking for and what the key services are. So people know there is an integrated approach. So it's not just you've got the practices and they're working, that people know there's an integrated approach. And I think that's important because, um, say, for instance, you've got flexible working time as part of your well-being uh, uh, kind of strategy. Flexible working can have beneficial effects on well-being, even if you don't use the flexible working because you know it's there if you need it. So there's kind of your perception that the organisation will support me if I need to. And because we have the practice and because I can see people using flexible working, I know I can use it. Um, so I think it's that, you know, having stuff, using stuff, doing stuff. And also communicating to people that, that, that this is what you're doing. Um, the, the, the other thing, of course, the stress is communications two way, and yes, then you need to listen yeah. to you know what 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 people's concerns are. Mm. Uh, and this goes back to the pandemic thing that the reason why people were being sent home to work from home before the government said so is they were listening to employee concerns. Uh, and this this went through the pandemic, and we know that already. Like pre-pandemic, don't we? That you know you you have to address what employees are concerned with. Um, telling people that you know you're now going to get some of this. And you know, well, actually, we don't want some of this. Quite prefer work to be like that. It, it, that that's really you know a really really important thing. Um, to have in place those mechanisms that you can understand how employees what employees concerns are and what the pandemic has really really shown us is that employees concerns shift they move and you have to be responsive to those shifts and moves now it was very rapid and very you know very dramatic those shifts in in what people were concerned about and in ordinary circumstances it's going to be you know a slower burn it might be you know an introduction of new technology or new working practices um which are probably you know less dramatic, not as noticeable, but being able to respond to, to whatever those shifts are, I think is really important. And that responsiveness indicates the level of authenticity that, that you know what you're doing isn't because you think this is it'll, it'll look good um, in your recruitment materials. It's you, you're doing it because you you know you really you really really do want to. And you know, you really have a genuine care for your employees. Yeah, and if you don't communicate that, they know. They know. Our field work has shown that they they figure it out if you don't care. Yeah. I mean, before Sheila jumps in, I'm just going to uh, I want to quickly ask you a question about um, the last three years of our life uh, up till June, which was um, forty-five thousand and three. Um, in terms of. Uh, 45,003 makes the connection between the, the psychological health and psychological sort of um, psychosocial risk in the workplace and also safety. 
Um, and I think uh, it's interesting because we had this conversation before about we, you know, we look at safety culture, but we don't look at psychological culture. Um, and actually, what would you would you say forty five thousand and three is trying to bridge those areas to realise actually people who are not psychologically well will engage in behaviour that potentially leads to to, uh, uh, to, to safety incidents. So, and the, the standard itself is trying to get people to create the right environment, which both has an impact on their on their psychological health as well as their safety. Yeah, I think I mean that, that that's an interesting because kind of the wider question there is a link between sort of psychological well-being and performance. Is I mean because if you're in a safety critical environment, then safety is a very very critical element of, of your performance. Because if you know people have incidents, then um, you guys from the health and safety executive come around and start investigating stuff and um, shut stuff down. So you know it really really is important from just from forget any moral legal just from an economic point of view so any anything that kind of you know brings those links together and and tells you what you can do about promoting performance through promoting well-being i think think is a is a is a really good thing because what we need is you know this is the practical action you can take because what we find is and we did a bit of work on this uh quite a few years ago and i mean pre-pandemic we're kind of looking at basically asking managers, well, why don't you do anything about health and well-being? And it was kind of, well, this is, you know, we understand there's a link between well-being and productivity. You know, the happy worker is, you know, more productive, more safe, won't do stupid things at work, make mistakes uh, and that kind of thing. But it's not a priority right now because we've got burning bridges all over the place that we need we need to deal with. So we basically, we don't have time. We didn't find, I can't think there's anybody that says we haven't got the money. It was just we haven't got the time has um, been, you know, the main excuse. But uh, even within that, I think there's, there's generally, you see, kind of, almost like things are a bit too abstract in a lot of the guidance. Uh, so, so things that, sorry, anything that's, you know, points to concrete action, that, that's what managers want. Um, is you know what can I do because I haven't got necessarily got the time to figure this out myself. I mean, there has to be a lot of figuring out yourself. But in terms of you know what is the practical, what are the practical steps I can take? Uh, I think that's that's an important direction uh, to take. And I, I certainly think in 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 the ISO that it is a health and safety ISO, so it does make those connections that what is good practice in safety is transferable across not just psychological health, but to, but to health. Uh, and I think that's, you know, tying the two together is, is really, really interesting because it's interesting doing work in, um, doing quite a lot of, you know, examining quite a lot of organisations in construction. Uh, and when they started on this kind of health and wellbeing thing, it was almost like, well, what do we do? What, you know, don't really know what we're doing. And then all the business say, well, we do know what we're doing. It's, it's kind of like safety and continuous improvements and, it's the same sort of stuff um, or the same sort of approach. And we, so, so we've already got the learning. The stuff that we've learned from how we do safety, we can apply to, you know, health and wellbeing. And uh, you know, we might need a bit more HR and a little less engineering, but, um, but we essentially know we've got the competencies to do this. We've done it before. We know it's a learning process. We know it's a continuous improvement process. We know it's something that you evolve and it's not static. 
And it's just that kind of, that, that kind of learning that they they took across. It's not the same for all organisations because they don't have that kind of background. They don't have that kind of familiarity with what well, are quite stringent regulations, um, not just coming from you know, 1974 Health and Safety at Work Act. So, you know, if you're doing work for, for rail track, you have a lot of drug and alcohol testing uh, for safety reasons. And that, that's one of the things one of our organisations said, well, well, we do quite a lot around drug, drug and alcohol awareness because we have to, because of rail track. And I think, well, that's kind of health, isn't it? Yeah, well, it is health. So we can do that with other stuff around, you know, diet, and especially if you're working on site and, you know, might be a bit too easy to have chips with everything. Um we, we can do with the health promotion stuff because we already know how to do that because we've had to do it. Otherwise, we don't get contracts. Yeah, I mean, a very, so, good, yeah. a very good example of that was the Sorry, Olympics with, with uh, the porridge. Remember when they had a lot of accidents in the morning um, because the, the people that were coming onto the site weren't having breakfast before they came on starting early and they're having accidents. So they, they, they initiated a porridge campaign with... They had subsidised porridge. They had the porridge image, mm. and, and it re, it actually reduced accidents um, fairly quickly within within a matter of a month or two. And the accident rate at that time in the morning went down dramatically. So, well, yeah, well, there's another morning, uh, another morning one actually that I came across. And this actually goes to how, how you use your data and and actually trying to figure out what's going on rather than presupposing. So, so a colleague of mine. Uh, interesting is professor of human resource management got con- contacted by a logistics firm saying we've got an engagement problem you know people aren't turning up to work you know we have this engagement problem so um and didn't come to me as kind of like you know health and safety kind of uh guy in the department it was uh, you know to hr professor because it was an engagement problem so yeah sh- sh- fair enough yeah th- th- there was um an absence issue. So she reviewed all the documentation, HR documentation, communication, all those practices. They looked fine. Uh, can I look at the data a, a bit closer, please? Uh, yeah, so we figured out it was the morning shift. The people who are starting work at five o'clock were more likely to be off um, off six. So a bit more delving into that actually turned out to be a musculoskeletal problem. Uh, the people who are starting early in the morning were basically getting up having breakfast and going straight to work the people on the later shifts have been up for an hour or been on the afternoon shift several hours so they're actually loosened up before they went on shift and started moving you know moving pallets around and packages around because it was a logistics firm and the lorries had to be stacked and that kind of stuff uh, so what they introduced so they didn't do anything you know changing the training and development or rewards packages or anything like that they just introduced a 15-minute limber up session I mean, they had to do that for every shift, for you know, equality's sake. But that, you know, it was uh, it was asking the, you know, the wrong question or presupposing without actually delving into the data and actually finding out what the problem was. It wasn't engagement. Um, it was just limbering up as simple as that, and, and, that's, and that's what did it. So it's, I suppose, the porridge example is a really good example, and that example is a really good example. You actually figure out what's going on, and then the the, the solution is actually quite simple. And I think that particular issue. I think that's a lot around the whole well-being piece, isn't it? I think we overthink health and well-being in the workplace. We overthink that we need to be doing something different. When I, you know, what you've said before there, Kevin, is that, you know, we have the infrastructures in place, we have the skill sets, we have the systems in place. Um, and sometimes we just overcomplicate it um, by thinking mm-hmm. about individual approaches rather than looking at the data, looking at the work, 
looking at taking a very um, systemic um, and logical approach to stuff to look at actually what is going, what is happening in the way that we're approaching work that's causing people to be either physically ill um, or stressed or, you know, kind of pushed to breaking limits. And it's interesting, you know, you mentioned that, and I love the one that you said earlier, everybody's well-being is everybody's business. Mm. Because if we walk into an organisation and say, who's responsible for customer satisfaction? If we walk into an organisation and say, who's responsible for the quality of products and services we produce? You would generally get a show of hands saying we're all responsible. We all have a part to play. Yeah, oftentimes we find that when you say who's responsible for well-being? <laughs> oh, it's not me. It's them. And there'll be this, it, it, well, it sits yeah. with HR, it sits with health and safety. And we need to embrace that in the same way that we do quality of products and services and customer satisfaction, because our employees are as an equal component to the success of our business uh, as those other two components. Um, so I love, I and love for many organisations, yeah, your biggest fixed costs, so kind of look after them. Mm. Um, as, as well, I mean, that's an interesting thing because you know if you run your production line at 120% capacity, it's going to break. Absolutely. So why would you run your, you know, your your biggest fixed fixed cost at 120% capacity uh, just because it's a soft machine rather than a hard machine? Absolutely. Um, you know, so there's that, and I think the the interesting thing though is one organisation we we did some work with, and you know. Some of the organisations that we work with, we deliberately work with because they won prizes um, and, and and they signed up to the, to the ISO as well. So so we know that they're fully committed uh, to figure out what what good looks like. Um, and of course, there's not a you know there's not a single pack of what good looks like. It depends on on the nature of your business. Um, I think that the commonality is this kind of willingness to learn, willingness to persevere, put effort into it, communicate about, it, and get this coherent kind of. Um, strategy where you've got multiple strands that are evolving and, and, and coming together. Uh, but in this one particular organization they had well-being champions. Um, it was it was an accounting practice. So there are you know sort of different offices all over the place. So each each office had, had a well-being champion. And their point was to get across the message that everybody gets involved in this well-being stuff. So any particular office they'll have their own kind of like mini program of what they're doing. And that might be around stuff like you know going for lunchtime walks or that kind of stuff or making minor improvements to, to what they're doing or social activities or you know one, one of the partners was really into mindfulness so he started mindfulness classes on but it's that kind of thing where it became something that something was going on all the time uh, and it was a continuous improvement process that they, they wouldn't use those words they didn't think about it in those terms but you could see how it was evolving um, mm. and how the center supported the specific locations to do what was appropriate for their location within a, a broader umbrella. So, so there were, you know, so flexi time, for instance, that was organisation wide. Um, but if you're, um, they got offices in, in in a coastal town, so you know the lunchtime walks there were on the beach, which yeah. you couldn't do, you know, if you're based in, um, you know, in, in in one of the more urban areas, um, you know, but you do something else in the urban area appropriate to your particular context and those kind of things. So, that, I mean, that's one reason why one size doesn't fit all is because the, the, the opportunities absolutely, and, and, the, and the circumstances are different. But it's been responsive to that. I think Absolutely. 
And I think, you know, we talked about this the other day, didn't we, about, you know, it is these these methodologies, these, these approaches that we're applying to well-being in the workplace, they're not new. You know, it does come down to continuous improvement. It does come down to yeah. doing things at a local level. You wouldn't give ear defenders to everybody in a factory as a uh, an approach for noisy machinery the people next to the noisy machinery would get the ear defenders yeah. but yeah. people in accounts wouldn't so why do we do generic approaches where we're looking at health and well-being it's got to be specific it's got to be focused it's got to be targeted it's got to be relevant yeah. um, and that will change from yeah. from the factory floor to the finance department to remote workers um, to senior management to production operatives so we have to have those systems in place that allow us to continuously improve our local environments within an overall mm. kind of remit um, and, and, and structure um, that supports that. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's really interesting. I was talking to, um, uh, obviously, you know, it's part of a research project, so I can't tell you who, but uh, sort of a, a major utilities uh, company, which has people going out um, and either going up poles or you know going down tunnels and that sort of thing. And so the problem with the people that do, that we send out in in the trucks to do this sort of is musculoskeletal, and especially the knees because they spend a lot of time kneeling down. Um, so that's a very very specific health concern that they have to do something about, um, which wouldn't you know doesn't doesn't apply to people in the desk based job. So it is like your defenders. It is understanding what the specific risks are and doing that within. And I think it's really important that kind of, as you said, kind of wider remit, because you don't want, um, you know, someone in the, that organisation to think, well, they're being looked after because they might get dodgy knees when they get on a bit, but I'm not being looked after because, you know, I'm sat at the desk. So, you know, what about my back? Um, so I think it is that kind of wider culture of care. Absolutely. I think the other thing in there, and you say, you know, you know, there's, 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 we've got the tools out there. Uh, and I think we do. I don't think, well, well I mean, the, the approach we took was to rather than say, well, we're going to invent new tools or something like that, was to say, well, what, what is it that organisations are doing to actually build up good programmes and sustain good programmes? And then it comes down to this mindset thing. Um, that it is actually about, it's about the culture. It's not about having the latest pads. Uh, so uh, a, a colleague of mine um, uses the, the term spangle trap. Uh, and I think it came from from an interview she did with uh, with a smaller organisation. Said, "Look, we can't afford pool tables. Well, well-being isn't pool tables. You know, it's not. Um, we don't all have to be Google. Um, in, in that, it, it's it get, you know, well-being is about the, the fundamentals. So, so one of the things is to say to people, do not get dragged into thinking that fruity Fridays is the be all and end all, or you need pool tables or table tennis tables or or anything like that. That's not." You know, I like a game of table tennis as much as the next person, but, um, you know, it's not going to make much effect on my job satisfaction, uh, really. Um, so it, it, it is about, you know, it's, there's the nice-to-haves, but they're not essentials. Uh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, you know, and I think it goes back to this issue of authenticity. If, if you really, really want to do this, then you will evolve what you're doing and you will listen to people and you will address their concerns. You won't just give them gym membership because it, you know. Absolutely. It's easy, it's expensive, but it's easy. And the thing is with stuff like this, Kevin, and going back to what you were saying earlier, you know, it's not a money issue, this, it's a time issue. And, you know, is it acceptable that we can say, well, we don't have time to do well-being? 
because I think what a lot of organizations sometimes do when they're doing this is that, you know, we haven't got the time to do anything else. Where are we going to fit this in? But we need to make time to do this well, because a lot of the time we haven't got time because maybe we're not working as efficiently as we can. We've maybe not got time because people aren't being as productive and because it's not always visible, it can be quite difficult to get that buy-in from organizations that actually we need to do this. And what we're actually doing is it might not yield you an immediate visible ROI, but when you're doing this consistently and over time, and it becomes part and parcel of what you're doing in your culture and the fabric of your business every day, that's when you start to see all the real improvements and the real results. So this is a way of working. This is part of your culture. This is not a, a well-being initiative with a start and an end date. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. It's not we're going to do this for six months and then that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, it. It is very much about, you know, sort of, you know, con- con- continuation um of activities to to and that, that's how it becomes mainstreamed um now there, there are easier ways of mainstreaming you know fitting on stuff so so we talked previously Sheila, about kind of using you know if you use kaizen processes you use kaizen to talk about safety so why won't you use kaizen to talk about how to make improvements in in well-being in your workspace uh, and how you can do things better and oftentimes uh, I mean, the, the Kaizen is a really, really good example here, you know, sort of this continuous improvement process. You say, well, what's going to make my, you know, what's going to make me happier at work? Actually being able to do my job without stuff getting in the way, um, you know, and getting frustrations and things like that. So, so sometimes you can see what people would want as an improvement for their well-being is to remove a frustration to what's affecting their performance. So, you know, this thing that Peter was talking about earlier, the well-being leads to performance. If if people are performing their job well and they want to do it, that will lead to their well-being. You know, they, they get a sense of meaningfulness out of their work. So it's not just about well-being, it's, it's a contributor to performance. Then doing meaningful work well is a contributor to um to well-being as well so yeah as i often say to my students so we tend to think about meaningful work as you know as education healthcare, and stuff like that and so well if, if you're making a great car um i'll give a plug to the west midlands here. if you work at jaguar landra and you make great cars then you know that, that, that is a source of meaning you can see those jags and those discoveries rolling off and they're good they're good motors yeah um one of the best pieces of advice. Some, you know, pride in your Sorry, Sheila. I'm saying one of the best pieces of advice I was ever given, and it was a real light bulb for mo- moment for me. And one of the simplest things somebody ever said to me was, Sheila, people don't come into work to do a bad job, to naff you off at the end of the day and create stress for you. If that's happening, there's an mm. underlying issue and you need to ask why and you need to find out what's going on. They just Nobody comes mm. into work, gets up and walks in intentionally and says, I'm going to do a bad job today. And that was the simplest yeah, yeah. piece of advice I've ever taken with me through my career, that there's always an underlying why. Is it because they've got a, a rubbish laptop that doesn't have a good connection or, you know, it's having the wheel of death or it's got old software on it? Or, you know, is it because they've got a poor relationship with a co-worker or because they're struggling at home? There's always mm-hmm. a reason because we don't get up to come to work to do a bad job. No, that's really good. One of our um, MBA students told me about this three years ago. She's an occupational health consultancy. So they got called in for um, 
you know, sort of persistent absence and, and that kind of thing. Anyway, it turned out that the, the, the performance and the absence problem was they had painted the office at this organisation and they hadn't consulted properly over the colour. Uh, they painted it yellow and this one particular person really objected to the colour yellow. And it was just, it's just as simple as that, uh, not, not consulting about what to most of us would appear to be a very trivial aspect of our work environment, but it was just simply not asking the question. Um, so, you know, so that, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a why. You know, yeah. you know, isn't it? Why, why did it come to this? Well, well, you know, you're going to change someone's work environment. It is worth asking them. Um, yeah. You know, no, absolutely. Uh, that. So, but to get back to this um, finding time, I think that relates very much to the business case, doesn't it? Um, why would you want to find time? Well, why would you want to find time? Uh, and, and what we found there is, we find this persistently across organisations and across the different studies that we've done, we go out and ask them, there is the economic case. So you say, this is good for productivity, or this is, you know, you get a return on investment. So there, there is always that economic case. Um, but beyond that, and what's more importantly, is this is how, you know, the, the, the proponents, and they're not always director level, they, you know, they can be coming from all, all places, um, but the proponents say, this is how it addresses your strategic priorities. Or your organisational values, so kind of strategic awareness, and I think that's you know one of the things. If you're going to make a compelling business case, return on investment is not sufficient. So to go back to Paul Litchfield and British Telecom, I remember a conversation I had with, with Paul, um, and we were talking to an economist. who was saying, "Well, surely you, you you know you just show return on investment, and and that's it." And Paul said, "Well, I can go to our board and say you'll get an eightfold return on investment, and that that's not unreasonable actually. And some estimates do put it like kind of." Eightfold in, in 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 return on investment for you know a, a properly integrated program, and he turns around to put the marketing director. I say, well, actually, you need the same amount of money. I'll give you twenty four, you know, to one return on investment. So you can't argue, necessarily argue against that. So you use the strategic case. So you say this is how it addresses your priorities. Uh, so it might be something like staff turnover. It might be you know sort of engagement or something like that. But it has to be. This is what the strategic priorities are. This is how health and well-being and, and safety contribute uh, to that and getting that right. Absolutely. So that that's a, a, an important that is that is not just an economic case, it is it is a proper business case. Absolutely, Kevin. Yeah, so, absolutely. so Kevin, we're just coming towards the end of uh, of today's episode. Um, I just want to understand from from you kind of advice to business leaders that um are looking at you know or reviewing their well-being approaches what would be that key piece of advice that they really need to have when they're looking at how it is they're approaching well-being whether that be a health and safety professional a hr professional oc health or you know the the the, the head of the the organization that that's kicking this off or reviewing this i i think it's the the uh, there's no magic bullet there's no one size fits all. I think it's one of these things you that there, there, there is no secret formula actually. That the organizations we talk to that do it well persist. They learn, they consult, they chat, they persist. Um, they get good governance of what they, no matter how they do it, it doesn't have to be a steering group, but they have a good governance structure around what they're doing, which can capture learning, which can consult. Uh, 
and they learn and they evolve. Uh, and I think there's also an acceptance of um, sometimes we get it wrong. Um, sometimes I, I had a good example from our research was that someone, one of our case companies thought, well, people tend to struggle financially over Christmas, so we'll pay people before Christmas. And this, this involved, apparently involved all sorts of administrative issues about, you know, getting payroll moved forward. And, and they did all of that. Uh, and the company turned, you know, basically the workers turned around and said, we budgeted for January and, and now all our money's gone. Uh, so, so they never did that again. But it's that kind of acceptance that you're not going to get everything right. Just learn, move forward. So, yeah, persist, consult. Um, do you know? Do the right things. Do do it with the best intentions. You've been listening to the UK Psych Health and Safety podcast. To stay up to date with the latest on psychological injury prevention and the new ISO four five double zero three standard, follow subscribe to the UK Psych Health and Safety podcast at www.ukpsychhealthandsafety.com.